Well, good morning. We are going to continue in our study through systematic theology, and today we actually are joined up with the youth group this morning. We've been studying through 1 John, and we actually are going to touch on the person of Christ. We're starting on Christology, and 1 John talks a lot about that, which we have seen, which we have heard, which we have touched, and speaking of Jesus Christ. So we want to come together to learn more about him and the study of Christology. So before we dive in, let's pray and prepare our hearts Um, to see what God has said about himself through his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the opportunity we have to gather. We thank you for your word that you've preserved for us. Thank you for your spirit that helps us to understand these truths about yourself that you've revealed for us to know. Although many times we look at these truths that are beyond what we can fully comprehend, Um, these are mysteries, but you have revealed about yourself, these specific truths, and I pray that you would help us to see it, to delight in it, and to worship you in spirit and in truth. We love you, Lord, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So far in our study through systematic theology, we've covered bibliology, which is the study about what the scriptures say about itself. We've also talked through theology proper, which is the study of God the Father, and today we're going to be diving into Christology. Christology is the study of Jesus Christ concerning his person and his work. This study is about the second person of the Godhead regarding who he is and what he has done. Critical for us to understand this subject is because without Christ there is no Christianity. This is central to the gospel in which we believe and which is our hope of who Christ is and what he has done for us. So on um, this slide, we have our our doctrinal statements. I don't feel like you have to scribble it all down. It's actually posted on our website, um, so you can refer to that. But this morning, I wanted to read that for us as we kind of dive into the subject to see how we've summarized it, and then we'll follow through our outline this morning. Here, our statement on the website says um, about God the Son, about Christology. We believe that Jesus Christ is the co-equal and co-eternal second person in the Godhead who was involved in creation with the Father and the Holy Spirit. We believe that he willingly took upon himself human flesh through the miracle of the virgin birth and now has two natures inseparably, inseparably united in one divine person without confusion, mixture, separation, or division. We believe that Jesus lived a sinless life in perfect and complete obedience to the Father, willingly died a substitutionary death for sinful man, was buried and rose bodily the third day. We believe that Jesus ascended to heaven, where he now sits at the Father's right hand and serves as the only mediator between God and man. We believe that Jesus will personally return in power and glory to the earth. Today we're going to look to the first half of our definition at the person of Christ. So you've seen on this, I've underlined and bolded a couple things specifically we're going to be covering in regards to the co-equalness and co-eternality of the second person of the Godhead and that Jesus took on human flesh through the miracle of the virgin birth and has now two natures inseparably united in one divine person without confusion, mixture, separation, or division. That's a mouthful. It's a lot. And again, just like when we study through the Trinity, 
what we have here is negative theology, right? We're creating boundary lines to say, based on what we observe in Scripture, these are truths that we must deny and uphold the fact that there's two natures united in one person inseparably forever. So divinity and humanity is what we're going to be looking for as we study through passages of Scripture this morning. And that really lays for us an outline, an outline that we can use to understand who it is the person of Christ was and is forevermore. So the first section we'll cover is the divinity. We'll look at deity passages in Scripture. We're going to look for the, the fact or the presentment of the preexistent of the Son of God, meaning that he existed before the virgin birth, not was a created being at that point, so, um, or became a created being, sorry. And then thirdly, we'll look at the eternal sonship, which is a, a specific doctrine under the topic of divinity that we want to talk about, this idea that Jesus is the Son of God. Did that start when he became, took on human nature, or did it start in eternity past? He has always been the Son of God. So secondly, we'll look at humanity in regards to the incarnation, what that means in regards to the virgin birth, and then we'll end with the hypostatic union. So a very small, short docket for us today that we're going to be covering. So first we'll start with the deity of Christ. So Uh, One of the areas I wanted to look at was specifically the prerogatives of Christ, which just means his rights. So based on what Jesus did, and we see through the Gospels, is it something that he made claims or did actions that would be explicitly or, or obviously to others around him something that would belong to God, that only God gets credit for or owns? So one of them is in Matthew 13, 41. He actually references um, his angels. So Jesus is speaking in the first person. He says, his angels, owning to him, and his kingdom. And it's interesting that it's in the book of Matthew because Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, often refers to the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. And for Jesus to say that it's his kingdom and he's commanding the angels of heaven, that would be a statement about the prerogative or saying that he's, he is God himself, that that is his ownership, his realm. Also in Mark 2, 5, um, Jesus states that he's able to forgive sins, and the Pharisees show up and say, hey, only God has the right to forgive sins. So there's clearly an interaction there where people are hearing what Jesus is saying and say, hey, that's not your right. That's not something you can do in and of yourself. And so it's important when looking through the Gospels to also see not just what Jesus said, but also how did the people in that exact time respond to the statements he was making. So Also in Matthew 25, uh, we see that um, he is going to judge the entire world. So uh, we know from Scripture that God alone has the right to judge the entire world. So to make a statement like that, again, is speaking to the fact that he was making a uh, statement about his divinity. In John 20, uh, 28, uh, this is the passage about Thomas. And Thomas says, Unless I see the nails in his, or the holes in his hands and the, the pierced side, I won't, I won't believe. I need to see it for myself. And what Thomas says when Jesus appears and says, touch, see, see my hands, see the holes, and see my side. He says, my Lord and my God. And what Jesus doesn't do there is he doesn't say, whoa, 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 Thomas, you're, you're confusing something here. That's, that's not who I am. I, I don't want to get this wrong like we see Paul do in Acts or others in the Old Testament say, don't worship me, don't worship me, I'm just an angel, don't worship me, I'm just an apostle. But Jesus accepts this worship and this title of Lord and God. So he accepted worship 
as well. And then in Matthew 5, he spoke as God. So in the Beatitudes, he's always explaining the Old Testament apart from what the Pharisaical law had interpreted for itself. And you see this phrase over and over again. He says, I say to you, I say to you. And in our day and age, we're, we're hearing and reading that statement and we're just saying, yeah, he's speaking, he's speaking. But when you look at the role of a prophet in the Old Testament, they often would say, even down to the date and year and time, they would say, at this point, at this time, I received a word from the Lord and I'm going to declare it to you. So they always give credit of what they're saying to who it came from. But Jesus is not deferring any of that. He's just saying, I say to you, I say to you. He's saying that I am the Lord, and here is what my word means. He's being very clear to his audience about what he's saying. And, and we see all throughout the, the gospel narratives, too, that they always were amazed at the authority with which he spoke. And that, that indicates, too, for us um, another one of the prerogatives that, that we see throughout the gospel of Jesus. So secondly, we want to look at some statements specifically that Jesus made. In John 10, 30, he said, I and the Father are one. So claiming to be one with the Father in essence, that would have been a very big statement. He's claiming to be equal with God again. In John chapter 5, he says, my Father is working until now, and I am working. And for us, it's like, well, are we sure that that's a claim of equality And the author, John, makes it clear to us that this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, in their view, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So again, this statement is something that's explained clearly in Scripture to be a statement of equality with God. That was what Jesus was saying during his time. He wasn't just a good teacher. He wasn't just this really wise prophet that understood things. He was making big statements, and it was getting him in trouble with the law at the time. In John chapter 11, verse 25, he claims to be the resurrection and the life. Jesus said to Martha, this is the passage about uh, right after Lazarus had, had died, He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And Martha responded to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. The testament here is who else, other than the creator of the entire world, has the right to give life, to sustain life? Only God himself. So to make a claim like this, again, is is a statement of saying, He is the divine son of God. And then if you uh, take a moment, flip over to John chapter 8. I wanted to look at John chapter 8 together. In John uh, chapter 8, he's having some, uh, some conflict. Some conflict between the rulers of the day. I believe it's the Pharisees here. And they're doing some, some smack talk. And they're actually you know, saying um, that you are a Samaritan. They're claiming, hey, Jesus, you're a Samaritan or you must have a demon in you. I mean, you're, they're, they're trying to de- debunk his um, heritage or saying that your, your mother was um, not pure, not a virgin, or they're trying to say that you're possessed by a demon. And how he responds is he says, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, 
and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, listen up, is what he's saying. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. But the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Who do you think you are? That's what they're saying. They're getting the vibe here. They're like, we're not liking what you're saying. And it's, you're making some big statements. So you better back off. And Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. So he's, he's tying this directly together. He's right. The God who you worship is my father. He's making a very clear statement. And in 55, he continues, but you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not even 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? And this is the big statement here. Jesus said to them again, truly, truly, I say to you, listen up. All ears, all eyes on me. Before Abraham was, I am. I am. He's making a statement here, referring back to when God revealed himself to Moses in Exodus, saying, I am, the I am. And he's saying, not before Abraham was, I was, but he's saying before Abraham was, I am. And if we're like, Stephen, that's your own interpretation. That's what you're thinking. Well, let's see what they said, right? The verse right after says, So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out to the temple. So we see here Jesus was making deity statements. He was claiming to be one with God, equal with God. And they knew it, and they ended up eventually crucifying him for blasphemy. That's what they were convicting him of. So there was no confusion during Jesus' time. It's only nowadays that people try to negate the divinity of Christ because they don't want him to be the authority, and they don't want to listen to what he says. So clearly in Scripture we see lots of statements. And again, in Matthew 26, we see um, on trial the high priest says, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said, you have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. You have heard this blasphemy, the high priest says. He deserves death. Prophesy to us, you Christ. That was the title they were giving him, this, this messianic title. There was no confusion in Jesus' time about who he was based on what he did and what he said. The people responded in the same way at all these instances when they rejected him or when they responded in worship to him in agreement with what they saw. He claimed to be the divine son of God. So that's clear, but not only from the Gospels do we get that. We get that all throughout the New Testament teaching. In John chapter 1, in Colossians chapter 1, in Hebrews chapter 1, we see clearly laid out the divinity of Christ. So if you're taking notes or marking down, those are three really important chapters in regards to the divinity of Christ. Chapter 1 in John starts out, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him 
was not anything made that was made. And then later in verse 14, he continues to state, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, which we'll talk about during the humanity section as well. So here John is laying out for us the word is Jesus Christ, and he was with God and he was God, and that everything came through him. Oftentimes you see this um, evidential statement made about who God is in regards to him as the creator God. When anything is talked about in creation, only God is the creator. Everyone else is the created. Everything else is created. But he is not. He is holy. He is set apart. And so to say that Jesus was the creator was a big statement. This is speaking to his preexistence, that he is eternal, and that he is the creator. Again, in Colossians chapter 1, we see he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So he's talking there about the divine nature of Christ. And then in verse 16, he continues, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, preexistent, and in him all things hold together. So again, there's that, that character trait as the divine creator, speaking of his divinity. And in 18, he continues, and he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Speaking to Christ as our redeemer and our reconciler. But just to scroll back a little bit. For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That's really important that we, we identify that. This is not um, part of the divinity of the Godhead that's dwelling within the Son of God. He is fully divine, truly God, fully God. In Colossians 2, it reiterates this point. Uh, verse 9 says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In Hebrews uh, chapter 1, just verse 3 states, He, speaking of Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. If Jesus is the co-eternal and co-equal second person of the Godhead, why does scripture then call him the only begotten son? That would be the, the, the question, right? We see all these passages. It's very clear. We see fullness and exactness in regards to the nature of God. But why is there language that would then cause us to think, well, begotten seems like something of generation or starting point. Um, so how do, we, how do we reconcile those passages with everything else we've just read about the divinity of Christ? So what about this term begotten? There are several passages Um, that use this term I've listed here for you. I don't think it's an exhaustive list. I think Hebrews actually references Psalm chapter 2, this passage, uh, where he says, today I've begotten you. But in regards to the term begotten, we need to understand that in reference to God, it's not referring to a starting point for divinity. Um, It cannot be. And when when people try to use terminology like um, subordination or subservient, Um, What they're saying is that the Son of God would be less than God himself. Um, They're saying that he's not co-equal. Instead, in this relationship between Father and Son, we see more of the term of submission. Submission. Um, uh, Rather than anything that would indicate less than God, 
uh, like subordination or subservience. So think back with me to John chapter 5, uh, verse 18, which we read earlier together. Um, he said he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So even in scripture, we see this definition played out. This is how the audience of who he was speaking to was hearing what he was saying. When he was claiming God to be his father, he was claiming equality with him. So to explain a little bit um, about this uh, term begotten, it can be interpreted as the only son or only begotten. And what it kind of indicates for us is this meaning of one of a kind. So in Genesis, you see this terminology of God created them according to their kind, according to their kind. And in a finite world, what that means is there's new creation that's of the same kind. But in referring to the Godhead, he's saying this is identical of the same kind, but to be God, there's no starting point. So it's, it's actually speaking to an exactness. Um, the eternal sonship doctrine, which plays into this, simply affirms that the second person of the triune God has eternally existed as the Son. This means that there was never a time when he was not the Son of God, and there has always been a father and son relationship within the Godhead. We see in Scripture that the sonship is not merely a title or a role that Christ took on at some point in history, but that it is essential to his identity as the second person of the Godhead. According to this view, Christ is and always has been the Son of God. And there are several passages uh, that refer to the Son as being sent by the Father, indicating that he was the Son before he was sent. Um, there are also several verses that state um, that the Son created all things. So as his role as creator, he still identified as the Son, which would be before um, he took on humanity. And all three persons of the triune God have existed for all eternity, and their names reveal who they are, not simply what a title or a function is. So it's important for us to understand um, this, this relationship and that Jesus Christ is the Son of God from eternity past to eternity future. So this term uh, refers to Christ, uh, this term the Son of God, when referring to Christ, speaks of his essential deity and absolute equality with God, not subordination. And this reference between the Father and the Son speaks of what um, theologically they refer to the Father as a, a paternity, and for the Son it's filiation um, in regards to his sonship. So hopefully that explains a little bit. There's a lot more you can read on it in regards to begotten, but it's important for us to understand that this is not something referring to um, the Son of God as having a beginning or a starting point, that he is pre-existent, co-equal, co-eternal, according to Scripture. So why is all this important? Why is the divinity of Christ important? Well, there's four points, probably more we could make, but specifically with the divinity, why is it necessary that Jesus Christ be fully divine, fully God? One, in Jonah chapter 2, we realize and see in Scripture, um, says salvation belongs to the Lord. The overarching theme is that man cannot merely save themselves. Only God himself can save. He is the infinite triune God, and the penalty for sin can only be bore by God himself. And all those who believe in him receive that by faith. So if salvation belongs to the Lord, he is the only one who can save then it must be God himself who saves. So if we say that Jesus was less than God 
or just kind of the grace of God empowering him, then it's ultimately man who's saving themselves. Secondly, um, it's important that Christ be fully divine and truly divine because 1 Timothy 2 mentions that only one who is truly and fully God could be the one mediator between God and man. In John 14, God reveals himself, and he has done that through his son. Hebrews mentions that as well, that he has spoken and passed through the prophets, and now he has spoken to us through his son. So the son of God reveals the father to us. That's why he constantly told people, if you have seen me, you have seen the father. In 1 John chapter 2, he also, uh, we also see John laying out for us specifically, um, no one who denies the Son has the Father. So if we deny that Jesus Christ was fully divine, what we're saying is that there is no life in us. <laughs> we're not confessing the truths of Scripture and what God the Father has revealed to us in the Son. So here are some statements we want to avoid making. These are the no statements, the negative statements. Um, in the sense that we don't agree with these statements. These are bad statements that we'll strike through here in a minute. Uh, One would be, we shouldn't say, the Son of God has a beginning. Clearly, through looking through the passage of Scripture, we see that Christ is preexistent. So we wouldn't want to say that the Son of God has any sort of beginning in regards to his divinity. We wouldn't also say that Jesus became God during some point in his ministry. There's no upgrading at any point in regards to his ministry to say, well, he started out as a man and then eventually uh, he became God. We see that uh, through the passages of Scripture that he was constantly claiming. And then we'll look at the virgin birth as well here in a minute in the humanity side. Also, we wouldn't want to say that the Son of God was created prior to the creation of the world. So if we say that in eternity past, before any of this world and universe existed, at that point... God the Father created the Son, and that's how the Son created all the world. What we're saying essentially is that, okay, there's God creating something else who created everything, which would still make that divine being that's made up not truly God, right? If, if he is the Son of God, he can't have a beginning. That's part of the doctrine of God that we, we studied in theology proper, is that he is Um, co-eternal, co-equal, pre-existent without any beginning. That's part of the character of who God is. So we can't make that statement either. And then contrary to the eternal sonship uh, would be the view of incarnation sonship, which basically indicates that at some point, either at the virgin birth or at his baptism, at some point during his ministry, that he became then the son of God. And that was a new relationship that was established where we don't see that... um, that point of view upheld in scripture and it causes more problems as well. So the yes statements though, I hate having those no statements up there. It makes me scared. Yes statements. This is what we should say that scripture says and we want to affirm is that the son of God is preexistent. Check that Jesus Christ is the co-eternal, co-equal second person of the Godhead. Check. Absolutely yes. And that uh, the doctrine of eternal sonship, that, that Jesus has always been the Son of God. That's not a new relationship, a new established role or title that he achieved or received, but it has always been the relationship between the Godhead, between the first and second person, Father and Son. So we've gone through half of our outline so far. 
In regards to divinity, we've covered the deity passages, some of them, there's a lot more, and actually a whole subject on the Old Testament um, theophanies and Christophanies of the, uh, in regards to preexistence and, and the passages about the Son of God that you could look into, and we also talked about eternal sonship. So now we want to dive into the humanity. We've seen that God is fully divine, truly divine, 100% God. We now want to look at humanity and what Scripture says about the humanity of Christ. So, initially we want to look at some passages in regard to the incarnation, but before we do that, I want to define for us what this term means, because it's probably not one that you use in everyday language, but incarnation is the concept of God manifested in human flesh. It literally means enfleshment, um, but it's more, even more than just that, that basic breakdown of the word. Um, I like how Grudem defined it. He says, the act of God, the Son, whereby he took to himself a human nature. I like way uh, one modern Christian artist puts it in regards to incarnation. He says, um, regarding the Son, see what he does by becoming what he wasn't while never ceasing to be what he was. It's a very succinct way of putting what we're going to be talking about, about God the Son, fully divine, taking on human nature. Several of these passages we've mentioned before, you're familiar with John 1, um, John 3.16. Galatians 4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. This, this really speaks to the necessity of Christ taking on human nature for us. Again, we've read Colossians 2, but I did want to cover this morning Philippians chapter 2. If some of you are thinking about that passage, um, Philippians 2 through 8 reads this way from the ESV. Paul is writing. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So how do we understand the passage here that Paul's communicating to this church at Philippi? How do we understand this idea of emptying himself. So the the actual definition of this word means to empty or to make void or to nullify or to make of no effect. Um, A helpful translation, and this is going to be the King James Version, actually says he made himself of no reputation, which really gets at the point here. Um, If you look at the passage in its context, he's saying right before that I want you to have this mind of Christ in you. I want you to be like him. And if Paul's saying here, for example, how people interpret it, Jesus emptied himself of his character, of his divine nature, so that he could become a servant and a slave, then what he's saying to the actual audience, original audience of this letter is, I want you to set aside your skills and your talents and your character traits to have this mind of Christ in you. That's what I want you to do. So that, that wouldn't make any sense for his instruction. And what he's saying here is that he's saying he wants you to be humble. He wants you to be humble, which we see exactly in this text. What he's saying of Christ here is not that he set aside any of his divine attributes or character. He is, as we saw earlier, 
fully God. But instead here, what we see is that he left the privileges and benefits of his position in glory behind to become, to take on human flesh, to become uh, fully man, as we will see. He left the worship of angels to be despised and rejected by men. Here we see that, that Christ possessed full divine nature, yet it was veiled, right? And we sing this song, as I was working on this lesson earlier, Jay Lee had brought to mind, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, which fits perfectly with Christmas, which is all about the incarnation, right? That's exactly what we're talking about this morning. And in that song we sing, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Hark the herald angels sing in glory to the newborn king. Those lyrics are rich with theology and good for us to look at and, and remember as we study through scripture in regards to the humanity of Christ. That the divinity was not poured out, it was not emptied or lost in regards to the character of God, the nature of God not being lost, but instead... Instead of emptying being a term of subtraction, it's actually a term of addition in regards to taking on human nature. So, specifically, we also want to look at um, this idea of the virgin birth that's presented in Scripture and what it means as the actual means by which um, God is going to save his people and the means by which the incarnation actually happens. Um, So, in Matthew chapter 1, he's very specific under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to point out to us that um, this event of the birth of Christ was before Joseph and Mary came together. And again, the angel said to Joseph in that passage in Matthew, which, side note, Joseph actually doesn't talk during that at all. He's actually like not even a main character throughout Scripture or highlighted at all, which I think is pertinent. Um, he's, the angel says to him, that which is conceived in her, speaking of Mary, is from the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on to cite the passage in Isaiah, which is Isaiah 7, 14. He says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Jesus' name means God saves. And Emmanuel means God with us. This is the point of the passages here that's speaking about the virgin birth. And again, Luke points out the same thing. And Luke, Mary tells the angel that she was a virgin, And that the angel then responded to her, because she's like, how is this going to happen? Just based on my knowledge as a young girl, that's not how this works. And the angel then tells her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And we see this promise again all the way back in Genesis. It's very interesting that in a patriarchal society, that Moses is writing down here in Genesis 3.15 when this curse is being pronounced on the serpent. He's, God is saying that the promise of the gospel, the proto-evangelium, the first promise of the gospel, is being made that it will come from her seed or her offspring. Why would that be written that way if not to point possibly to the future of, hey, this is actually going to be something that's not going to come through man, as we know scripture testifies to Um, man's seed passing on sinful nature, which is not one and the same with human nature. So the virgin birth is a miraculous conception of Christ in the womb of Mary by the work of the Holy Spirit without a human father. And that's important for us to uphold and for us to see why this is important. So this theme 
throughout Scripture is that man can't save themselves, right? We've said that already this morning. Only God can save. And this is the will of the Father, this virgin birth, and the work of the Spirit that made the Word flesh to save his people from their sins. The virgin birth shows us that salvation ultimately must come from the Lord. The virgin birth made possible the uniting of full deity and full humanity in one person. And also made possible Christ's true humanity without inherited sin. So we, we often, when coming to this subject of the full divinity and full humanity of Christ, we come to it with some misconceptions and some definitions in our head um, about what human nature is and even oftentimes what divine nature is, right? And what we need to understand is that God is divine, so I think he knows his nature better than us, and he is the architect of human nature. So he, he knows what he built. He knows what he designs even better than us, and we will do, do well to remember that this is God's design and that his original design of human nature was actually very good, he says in Genesis. So it's important as we kind of look to this that we want to make sure that not only was Jesus born without sin nature, but that he had perfect obedience as well, that there was no sin, that he was sinless. So um, let's look here at the humanity, the fullness of humanity and the sinlessness of Christ. So, There's a lot of passages here. Feel free to snap it with your phone or I can get them to you later. But to run through this quickly, speaking to Jesus having full human nature indicates that he had not just a body, not just that he had a vessel um, in which he uh, presided, but that he also had a human will and a human mind that is part of human nature. So these passages speak to that he was born, he grew, He was tired, he was thirsty, he was hungry, that he died and he rose with a physical body and ascended in a physical body. So that's why we say that he took on human nature at the point of the virgin birth, forever moving forward into eternity future. So he also had a human mind. Scripture says he increased in wisdom. He learned to eat, talk, read, and write. He had a human soul and emotions. His soul was troubled. Um, It says in Scripture he he was troubled in spirit, He also marveled and experienced sorrow. And these verses reveal to us the fact that Jesus has a human nature, that it's physical, moral, and intellectual. His body, will, and mind, all part of the fullness of his human nature that he took on for us. Jesus' actions, um, importantly for us to communicate, are an expression of his human or divine nature. So it wouldn't be right for us to say that Jesus' divine nature did this, or Jesus' human nature then did this. Natures don't do stuff. Um, Attributes don't do actions, right? People, a person does an action. So it's right for us to say that Jesus did this, which shows us his divine nature, or by doing this, he shows us his human nature. That's that's a uh, kind of distinction that's really helpful in regards to understanding and grasping, even from a human language, how we communicate this idea um, in regards to these two natures in Christ. So although we think of the of being sinful as human nature, um, we know there's a distinction in Romans talks about sin being passed down through Adam, through the seed of man. So let's look at also the testimony of Scripture in regards to the sinlessness of Christ, not only being fully man, but also without sin. So Satan was unable to successfully tempt him. And interesting enough, the actual temptation of turn this stone into bread 
He's trying to tempt Jesus to use his divine nature to satisfy his human nature, which he never does. He never does in all of Scripture. He never will. But that's even an indication that Satan's trying to pit these things together, but that's not how God designed it. It doesn't work that way. Um, But an indication possibly that um, both natures are actually present. He really was hungry, and he really could turn that stone into bread. So um, passages also indicating that he was above reproach. Um, He is indicated as the light, um, meaning he's truthfulness and moral purity without sin. Um, The Lord testified at baptism, right, that he pleased the Lord. And Pilate said that he found no sin in him. The gospel or the epistles indicate for us that um, Jesus knew no sin, that he was tempted but without sin. And then he's described also in Hebrews as holy, innocent, and unstained as our high priest. Peter says that he was without blemish and that he had no sin, and that he was the righteous substitute for the unrighteous, the morally perfect for the immoral. And then First John also indicates for us that Jesus Christ is the righteous one. So truly man, yet without sin. Born without a sin nature, and he never sinned. Both of those are true statements. So why is it so important that we affirm that God the Son fully and truly took on human nature. So doctrinally, it's important that we confess that Jesus came in the flesh. First John states that. Secondly, we see substitutionary. We need, in Romans it says, by one man's disobedience, the many became sinners. But by one man's obedience, the many became righteous. So it's important that um, a man substitute for mankind's sin. He's also our mediator in Hebrews, and in Romans 10, we confess that Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead, that there's a physical human nature involved as well. So this is central to the gospel for us. So some no's quickly that we'll review. Jesus' divine nature did the miracles. That's a statement we would not want to make, right? We want to make a distinction that Jesus as a person, one person with two divine natures inseparably united. So we wouldn't attribute actions to natures we would attribute actions to the person of christ so we strike through that god the son does not have a human will that's a negatory that's that's a no-no um he had a human will and we see that and if you say he doesn't have a human will then you really struggle to say okay then it's just a divine will that was hungry yet he has a cattle on a thousand hills you know he doesn't need anything He's not dependent as a divine. So he he does have a human will that's distinct from his divine nature. Jesus was born a human, but during his life he became the divine son of God. No, there's no upgrading to super saiyan human level. You don't upgrade um, as a human. That's, That's our problem, right? If man could upgrade, then we would all do it. Uh, but we can't in ourselves. And that's, that's why the hypostatic union, this, this idea of the incarnation of God is such an amazing gift and miracle for us. Uh, we also wouldn't want to say that Jesus' resurrection was only spiritual. Um, that's to forsake Christianity and to deny that Jesus was really who he says he is because he said he would rise again. And to say it was just spiritual is to say that we won't have a physical resurrection, which is promised in Scripture. So we also don't want to make that statement. So some yeses quickly. Uh, Jesus was born by the Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit, not by the means of a human father. Check. Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man, truly God and truly man, without confusion, without mixture, without division, without separation. And also we'd say Jesus Christ is the God-man. So I'm 
way out of time, but I want to do this quick napkin version of the hypostatic union, okay? We support and see from Scripture that Jesus is the God-man. So he is 100% God, 100% man, fully God, fully man. What what happens if we say that, well, it wasn't really God, it was just man. Well, if he's not truly God and it was just merely the power of God, this, this would mean that he claims to be God, but that would make him insane. He's saying he's something that he's not. So that wouldn't jive with scripture. But what if he was partially God? Then it would just make him an odd man, right? He's, he's kind of confused. So we, we also wouldn't say he has to be fully God. So, okay, we'll, we'll go back. We'll say, okay, he's got to be fully God. What if he's not really a man? He's not truly man. He's just an apparition or a ghost. Well, then he can't be our substitute, as John verse says, that we're also not of God if we don't testify that he came in the flesh. So, boom, done. What if uh, he was just kind of just the fleshman but didn't have a human soul? Then we have a godma, which is also weird. And that he wouldn't be fully man, he just had mere enfleshment. Well, then our souls don't have salvation. We'd be robots. We'd just be this body walking around. If he doesn't have a human soul and take that on for us, then our souls are not saved. So again, that falls short. He has to be truly man and fully man to be our substitute. So thirdly, some other heresies beyond taking out God or taking out man is what if they try to separate these natures and say that, oh, at some point he was man and then he upgraded to being God. So what they try to do is say, well, there's two natures, then we must have two people, two distinct people. We must have one person. If it's an upgraded, again, we, we lose the whole testimony of Scripture that man cannot save themselves. Um, it started human only and then upgraded to God would mean that salvation would be something that man can do on their own and not able uh, to reconcile the testimony of Scripture as well, where we see simultaneous um, human Um, where Jesus is simultaneously expressing a human nature and expressing a divine nature when he's sleeping because he's tired in the boat and then they wake him up and then he calms the storm. It's like, okay, well, how do you just kind of jump back and forth in and out? Um, That doesn't reconcile with what we see as a testimony of Scripture. And then also, um, if we then say, well, if they're not distinct, then what if we kind of just throw all these together into one thing? Well, then we have the idea that we've gone mad. Did I mess that up? We've gone mad. So don't mix his natures, okay? Um, you can do that on a napkin. Just write gone mad on the backside when you flip it over, and then it'll be a fun little anagram or whatever that's called where you mix the letters together. So if we mix his natures together, here's the idea here. You're changing the very nature of God, and God is immutable. He cannot change in his nature, in his attributes. And if you change that, if he was to change, then everything would be undone. Um, he wouldn't, he, it means either before he wasn't God and there was no God, which none of this exists, or afterwards he then became something less than God because he was tainted with human nature. Neither of those works. So that's why we must uphold the testimony of Scripture that says Jesus is the unique Son of God. He is the unique God-man. And if we uphold what Scripture says, I'm just going to run to the end, that he's fully God, fully man, truly God, truly man, then we see that there are two distinct natures in one united person. We have for ourselves the hypostatic union. So quickly, I don't have time to talk about this, but please meditate on the hypostatic union. I've been blown away this week by thinking about the amazing gift that God gave us through sending his son. And it's immensely humbling to see God's design, his wisdom, and his perfect gift for us. I mean, that we don't deserve. 
He solved our biggest problem by becoming one of us and humbling himself. So it's important for us to meditate on these truths and apply it to our lives personally. I hope it's been helpful to you. And uh, we'll definitely have a Q&A, and you can make some of the other guys squirm because I'll be in youth group. So, But with that, you are dismissed. <laughs>